You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. This week we are going to talk about a woman's year of less. It's about her journey to spending less and living with less by confronting her somewhat binge-like consumer ways. She writes, All I knew was that I seemingly had everything I wanted in my home, in my career, and in my life, and it never felt like enough. I was never satisfied. I always wanted more. But since more of anything wasn't filling me up, maybe it was time to challenge myself to go after less. The woman who wrote this is named Kate Flanders. She is a longtime blogger, and her new book is called The Year of Less, How I Stopped Shopping, Gave Away My Belongings, and Discovered Life is Worth More Than Anything You Can Buy in a Store. Hi, Kate. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So we're getting you somewhere in Canada, right? Where are you? (laughs) Yes, I'm in um, Squamish, British Columbia, which is a kind of a small mountain town in between Vancouver and Whistler. Excellent. Well, I have northern exposure now all over my brain. I know that was Alaska, but it does it look anything like that? Um, actually, yes. BC and Alaska look pretty similar in a lot of ways. So, all yeah. right. Well, that's the picture I'm going to keep in my mind. <laughs> you and a moose crossing the street. Uh, there's elk here, so yes, that's not far off at all. <laughs> okay. Tell tell us how you came to this. What what led you to this ultimate shopping ban? Well, I'm actually so happy that you read that part from the introduction of the book because it's been it's been really interesting doing interviews. I've been finding um, there's a lot of misconception that people think I did it to get out of debt and not that I think that would be a bad way maybe to get out of debt, but it, it was sort of, you know, a year or so after I had finished paying off a bunch of consumer debt I had and I was still doing this thing though where I would track my spending and I had monthly budgets And I would say at the beginning of every month that I wanted to save 20% of my income. Mm -hmm. And that should have been very doable for me. When I was paying off my debt, there were months where I was putting up to 55% of my income towards debt repayment. And that that was very aggressive. And uh, I actually, I wouldn't, like, if I could do things differently, I probably would have done that, been a little bit less aggressive. Well, you Um, paid off, uh, I mean, we shouldn't softball this at all. I mean, you paid off $30,000 in consumer debt in two years. That is a significant accomplishment. It was, um, yeah, and it was something, like, I will never regret, but Yeah, I do truly kind of believe that the way I approached it was um, it came from this place of really because I got to the point where I was maxed out. Mm -hmm. And when I when I hit that wall, it was sort of like I felt like such a failure. And I think honestly, for those two years, as I was working on paying it off, I still like that was the story I was telling myself was I had screwed everything up. You know, I, I was ruining my chances of having a strong financial future. I just felt really awful that I had gotten myself into that situation. 
Um, and I wish I had had a little more balance with it. I wish I had taken the time to, and, and the money to like save a little more, maybe like the two years was totally self-imposed. I didn't have to pay it off in two years. And so if I had done it in like three years, maybe I would have had more in savings or a little more in investing, like by the end of it. Um, and I really didn't, I was just so obsessed with getting down to zero. And then the problem was sort of, I got there and it was like, well, what now? Like I, I not only was I kind of just arbitrarily saying I would like to save 20% of my income without like a real goal for that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I really, like I hadn't learned any lessons of why I had gotten into debt in the first place, like why I was an overspender, um, what my habits were, anything like that. And so I went basically right back to spending. So I would say I wanted to save 20% of my income and then I was getting to the end of every month and I was like lucky if I was saving 5%. So where did this idea of a self-imposed ban come from? I mean, it seems to me, and I just want to tell everybody, not only did you get out of consumer debt very quickly by going cold turkey, you quit drinking cold turkey, you stopped shopping cold turkey. Is there an all or nothing aspect to your personality that we need to know about? No, I don't th- I don't think so, at least. And I have been doing some therapy this past year, and I don't think that's it. I think that... Um, when I look at a lot of the changes that I've made, it has honestly, and this is, I love saying this because it's basically like personal finance advice 101. It has all come from a place of tracking how I'm feeling or how my numbers are doing. So for me, the shopping ban came from this place of for an entire year, I was budgeting and tracking my spending and not feeling happy with the fact that I was just justifying why it was okay to spend. Mm -hmm. And I, and I wasn't saving anything and I didn't feel good about it. So it's like the idea is kind of planted once a month at least for 12 months in a row. And then I get to a point where I'm like, okay, something has to change. Like this isn't going to work anymore. Um, so I, I don't think it's like a totally jump in all or nothing. I do think that there's thought that comes from it or like thoughts behind it, uh, leading into it. So for an entire year, I was sort of feeling like I could be doing better. I want to try something else. Um, but didn't know what it was until I sort of started writing the rules for it. Well, that's where I was going to go next. You had some very specific rules. So tell us how you framed this ban and how you decided what was going to go on the list of things that you were allowed to buy and things that you were not allowed to buy and things that were approved or not approved. Yeah. So I, I will say like at the same time I decided to do it, I also thought of kind of decluttering my home. And so in in a way the, the rules came from a mix of both. What I essentially did was like walked around my home and really asked myself like, what do I use on like a daily and weekly basis? And that stuff is consumables. So things like groceries, um, toiletries, the things that I'm actually using on a constant basis. Um, So to me, those were like, obviously I'm allowed to buy more because I'm actually using those things. So obviously allowed to buy um, gas and uh, toiletries only when I ran out of them though, like not just stockpiling or buying, buying toiletries like for fun, buying cosmetics for fun, like things I'm actually using when I run out of them, I could buy more. Okay. Um, Put gas in my car, obviously things like that. I also was allowed to still buy gifts for other people. Like I didn't want anyone else to be a affected by this. Um, I really just wanted to stop bringing things into my home unless I actually needed it. So then the list of things I was not allowed to buy came again from like looking around my home and seeing I already had enough, like clothes, shoes, um, accessories, books, magazines, electronics, like anything for around the house, decor, things like that. Like 
I didn't need anything. There wasn't anything that I absolutely needed. So those were just put on the list of things I was not allowed to get. Um, and then there were a couple of things that I could look ahead and see I probably would need. Like a year is a long time. It is a long um, time. <laughs> and so I I looked ahead and was like, okay, I have five weddings to go to. That was sort of my last year of having a lot of weddings <laughs> to go to. I had five weddings and I'm not someone who ever really dresses up for events. Like I don't really own things like dresses and high heels. Um, so I was like, I can buy one outfit for all of the weddings. And um, I knew also that if I could save the money, I really wanted to replace my bed. My bed was 13 years old at that point and probably should have been replaced at like year nine or 10. Um, and so I knew if I could save the money, I wanted to be able to make that purchase. So how was it? I mean, you wrote in the book that it wasn't easy. It was not easy. Yeah. I mean, what I will say is I, I think in some ways the hardest parts were the first few months. And that is because I was changing a lot of habits. So habits, again, around what I what I did and spent money on um, daily or weekly. So, oh, I forgot to say one of the things on the list of what I couldn't spend money on was takeout coffee. And I'm not someone who thinks and I would never tell people like, oh, you're not allowed to get your latte. I think personal finance is personal. And so people can spend money on whatever they want. For me, I was at this point where I was working from home full time and somehow was still spending like $100 a month on takeout coffee. And I just was no longer comfortable with that. But I can totally understand why you were doing that. I mean, you were doing that because you were working from home. You know, as somebody who works from home a lot, sometimes I have to, even though I have a perfectly functional coffee maker, sometimes I have to go out and buy coffee so that I see people. Oh, totally. And now I would say like I'm someone who I do get takeout coffee, but it's much different. Like I will now, because I still work from home, um, I use coffee shops as more like a co-working space sometimes too, right? Like I'll get out of the house for four or five hours, sit at a coffee shop. That is, it's much cheaper to spend $5 on a latte than it is to spend like a day's wage at a, at a co-working space. So I do do that now. I think again, for me, it was realizing that it was so habitual and I wasn't happy with how much I was spending on it. I want to dig into the habits actually, yeah. because I mean, you talked about the fact that the toughest part of this whole experience was not not being able to buy anything new, but having to confront your physical triggers or your emotional triggers and your reactions to those things. And I think that we all have those. But before we get into it, I just want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We are working together to encourage all women to be in the front seat when it comes to our financial health. Why? Because women are in the driver's seat in so many aspects of our lives, managing our careers, our families, and more. And yet, when it comes to making decisions about money, too many women delegate to someone else. One thing is clear. When it comes to investing, you always want to be in the front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, what your goals are, and having an annual financial checkup. You can learn more about that at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are talking with Kate Flanders. She is the author of The Year of Less, a book about her self-imposed shopping ban. So tell me about the habits. Tell me about what you learned were the things that triggered you to shop and how you started dealing with them. Because I know a lot of us, myself included, 
I shop for a lot of reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with needing something or even really, really wanting something. Yeah. I, and I think that I was exactly the same for a long time. Um, I think it's sort of it's sort of unfortunate that I wrote the book before I really dove deeper into therapy <laughs> because <laughs> because something I have realized since is that, um, like you mentioned, I quit drinking when I was twenty seven and I started drinking when I was twelve years old. Whoa. And yeah, and so it was that was a huge shift for me. Um, I quit during the same time that I was paying off my debt. and it's then not really that surprising to me that I went to spending, right? Because I didn't have anything else that I sort of could rely on for not only celebratory reasons, but also just how to deal with a bad day or um, feeling rejection or going through something hard. So that year I went through like the year of the shopping ban, I went through a breakup a few months into it and found myself, um, just kind of wanting something that could pick me up a little bit. Like, so I started looking at things like clothes. Like I just felt kind of, I don't know, like gross and shabby. And like, I just didn't feel good. Like rejection does that to you. Like you just don't feel good about yourself. Right. And so I started looking for things that would make me feel better quickly. I also noticed that anything that seemed like an annoyance, like I wanted to just quickly buy something to make it better. So things like my cell phone was acting up and I would just go online and be like, how much would it cost to just replace this right now? And I even like added it to the shopping cart and looked at the final price. And then was like, thank goodness it was hundreds of dollars because I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not breaking the ban for this. Um, but I had never done that before because old me going through a breakup, I would have absolutely bought things. I would have drank. Um, and so it was the first time in my life that I really think I had to do the tougher part, which is that I had to feel the feelings. I think um, a lot of people don't realize that shopping in that way can, I mean, it can be like food if you if you eat your feelings. It can be, it can be like drinking. It can be like whatever it is you rely on to lift your mood up a little bit. Exercise for a lot of people is like that. And I think people often don't understand that shopping can go in the very same basket. Well, and very quickly. I think, you know, especially with, I mean, you would know this more than anyone, but like we know things like, especially when you're um, buying stuff online or swiping with credit, like it's so much easier to just make the purchase and not think about the actual dollar amount. Mm -hmm. And, and it, there also is that like quick little high that it gives you like not, not an actual high, but you just like, it's like a sense of relief for like you've just. No, I think it is an actual high. I think it releases dopamine. And it's it's exactly the same as, you know, a kiss or mm -hmm. chocolate. It's it is that feel good chemical that it, not in everybody, but some people's brains and are, are wired that way. So how did you deal with it? How did you leave the phone in the cart or not buy something after that breakup? I mean, I, I will say that I think that having the shopping ban there just sort of was a guide for me. Like I was just kind of, okay, I'm actually not allowed to do this. I also knew I had to be accountable on my blog and that I would, if I broke it, I would write about that on the blog because there was at one point during that year where I did talk myself into buying something and then very quickly canceled the order. But I wrote about it on the blog because that was a real moment that happened. So I knew I didn't want to write about it, especially so early on. Um, and that moment, and then throughout the entire year, honestly, I really relied on a couple of close friends of mine 
So now I've, and I think I've always known this through the blog, but I've really realized that year more than any other, that it's really important for me to have at least one person to stay accountable to Mm -hmm. and not just like a person to stay accountable to, but it's really like choosing the friend who understands your goals, knows why you're doing something, and then will encourage you to make the good decision. Because, and I talk about this a lot in the book, like it it would have been very easy to call any one of my other friends who would have happily encouraged me to buy the things, right? Like they would tell me that I deserved it or that, and I have lots of those friends. And I also know in a past life, I would have been that friend for other people too. And so it was really important for me that year. There was one specifically, my best friend, Emma, I knew if I told Emma she would straighten me out. Like She would just say like, no, like, is it on the list? Are you willing to, you know, replace it with something else that's on the list? Unless you're going to do those things, you're not buying the thing. Um, and so having her was very helpful. I want to transition a little bit because your story is not just about spending less. It's about living with less, literally. And you went through and got rid of 70% of everything that you owned. So how did you how did you do that? What did you learn about the minimalist movement and zero waste? And how did you decide what would stay and what would go? And how does that feel? So it was really easy in the beginning because um, this was actually just a few months before Marie Kondo's book came out. The and so, but I essentially did what she tells people to do, which was that I literally dumped the contents of every drawer, cupboard, closet onto my floor, and then I was living in a mess. Like at that point, you have to clean it up. So I started going through one by one. If it was clothing, I literally tried it on. If it didn't feel good, it immediately got bagged up. Um, boxes, like there were things I had moved from home to home so many times over the years, but I never really opened the boxes. It was just kind of that sense of feeling like, well, because you own it, you own it forever. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a lot of stuff that was really easy. So like in the first month or two that I did it, I got rid of 40 or so percent of my belongings. That was pretty easy. It got harder towards the end of the year and I didn't, it's not that I had to get rid of more stuff, but I think once I had gotten rid of enough that, I just could see kind of what was left over. And it was either all the stuff I actually used and loved, but then I also had things around my home that when I looked at them, I genuinely felt guilty about because not only had I never used them, like at one point I'd spent lots of money on it Mm -hmm. and I had never used it, but I also realized that I bought it for the wrong version of myself. Tell me about one of those things. Um, I think like a, big one was, well, there's probably two even. One was I used to buy a lot of books that I thought kind of like the more interesting version of myself would read. (laughs) We all do that. (laughs) I would, you know, buy lots of classics or um, certain nonfiction books that I thought would help me or just, yeah, like I'm like, I want to be the kind of person who reads this, but I never actually read them Mm -hmm. because the real me wasn't that interested in it. Right. And and the other side of that was I also used to um, buy just more creative things, like even an expensive camera. I when I was like 20, I had bought a bunch of like scrapbooking materials and at 29 still had never used most of it, um, but just carried around with me because you own it. So you own it forever. But I really realized, like, even though I thought I would like to be this more kind of talented version of myself, like that's just not who I am. It's not 
an actual interest of mine. And so I ended up letting go of all of those things and just realized I had to accept myself for who I was. Like, it means my interests might not be that cool or like I might not be, um, I don't know, the most interesting person to talk to about certain things. Like I do like easier reads and that's just who I am. And like, that just has to be okay. And I, I had to just let go of this idea that I should be someone else. I think we all have to let go of the idea that we should be someone else, right? I am never going to be someone who juices or, (laughs) you know, who who is able to touch my toes. And, you know, I'm going to at some point have to be okay with that. And and for the record, my bookshelves are full of best-selling mystery novels because that's what I like to read and not, not the classics either. No, that's awesome, though. And because it's just, it feels so good to, like, once you start figuring out who you are, it actually feels a lot better to be able to talk about those things. And yeah, people might not think that that's the most interesting thing, but then you'll find a lot of people who also like the same stuff. And when you just talk about it a little more confidently, I think that that was something I've realized over the years is that, you know, especially because of starting drinking so young, I think that so much of my self-worth was wrapped up in that. And it took a really long time for me to start to figure out who I am and feel good about it. And how are you today? I feel great. <laughs> I feel um, so much lighter, like in a physical and just kind of emotional sense. Like I, um, I know who I am. It's easy to now buy things. I also want to say that like, I don't think buying stuff is bad or spending money is bad. It feels so much better now to be at a place where I'm only buying for the real me because it also makes spending decisions a lot easier. Like, is real me actually going to use that? Okay, great. Then I will buy it. Have I felt a need for that thing? Yep, perfect. Then I will buy it. Like, it's rather than browsing, I think I would say actually that the biggest activity that's changed in my life is I don't browse anymore. And browsing being everything from like walking into a mall and thinking, oh, I'm just going to look around. Like, if you're looking around, you'll find something to buy. Mm-hmm. At least I I always did. <laughs> and same thing online. Like if you're looking online websites or even following things on social media, like if you're browsing and just looking around, you will find things that you want. And I, I really had to change that. So um, my interests now are much more boring, maybe. Like I read a lot of books and I go hiking a lot. <laughs> it sounds like a really, really nice way to live. I want to thank you for this conversation. It was really interesting and I think inspiring to a lot of people because even if we can't go cold turkey, I think there's a lot that we can learn about how to curate our own shopping behavior. So thank you for writing it. The book is The Year of Less, Kate Flanders. Where can we find the blog? Um, just kateflanders.com. And uh, I'm either on there or on Instagram at the same, just Kate Flanders. And I should tell everybody it's C-A-I-T Flanders yes. <laughs> so, that, so that they can actually find you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jean. Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hello. So I had so many thoughts while yeah, talking to I her. I could see you thinking. You, uh, yeah, yeah, it's very apparent on my face. The first was that it's easier when you have a rule. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- whatever it is, if you just have a rule like I don't eat guacamole, yep. then you don't eat guacamole and you can say to people, no, I don't do that. And it makes it easier to stick with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a shopping ban for a little while, not a cold turkey kind of shopping ban, but I did a... I did an experiment for six months or so where I decided that I wouldn't buy anything on sale Mm. 
because I'm very susceptible to things that are on sale. And I wanted to see what it felt like to buy things full price. And if I was only really spending money on things that I wanted more, not things that I just wanted because they were 50% off. I remember. How did it go? It went well. I did shop less. And I actually thinking, I'm just thinking back. That's why my mouth is moving slowly. But I'm just (laughs) thinking back on the things that I purchased while I was doing that. I think I liked them all. That's really good. Yeah. And, And that is not true of everything in my closet. No, because I have been the lucky recipient of a few items, (laughs) I have to say. (laughs) I haven't done a challenge like this before in terms of spending. I think reading her book, it inspired me. You said at the end, it's inspiring. It is inspiring. And the way she framed it made me feel like it was attainable for myself and for anyone who wants to do it because she's really big on writing your own rules. I don't know what mine will look like, though, so if you have any ideas or suggestions because you know my (laughs) consumer spending habits, I am all ears. Mine would have to, if I were to do this again, it would have to involve getting offline. Like, even if I think even if I just said I am not going to shop online, it would make me a little more conscious because I do a lot of online browsing. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily buy all that much, but I, I spend, you know, my husband's watching baseball. I've got the computer open and I'm looking. See, I don't do that. And you know, in another revelation I had while reading her book that I would love to talk about either with her or maybe a larger conversation that we could have on the show that I think many millennials and people can relate to too is I actually only buy what I need Mm -hmm. because also when you're living in New York City, like, you have to be selective about what you buy. No closet space. Because you don't have space. So in the past four-plus years I've lived here, like, I've done a pretty good job with, like, minimalism. But what I overspend on, no question, or just spend the majority of the money I'm able to spend each month is on experiences. So dining out, events. Mm -hmm activities with friends or, you know, always being out with friends, like it adds up in a big way. I don't know how to reel that in without totally compromising my happiness. Well, I do think there's a little bit of figuring out which of those experiences will be more meaningful and which which won't. And making a budget for them. Yeah. As long as you allocate the money, then you have essentially given yourself permission to choose the experiences that fit into it. Uh, More to come. I think I just need to save significantly more right away so that I give myself less for the experiences because it's hard to say no. Well, you know how to do that. I do. You do. You do. do. All right. What do we have? Okay. Our first question is from Nessa. She writes, my husband and I have about $10,000 saved up towards a house. We currently live in an area with expensive cost of living and would like to have about $30,000 saved by the time we are ready to buy in three to five years. We currently have the money in an account with a high interest rate. But my husband wants to invest some until we are ready to buy the house. How much would you recommend investing? I'm worried about investing too much and not being able to buy in the future, but he wants to invest as much as possible. Nope. (laughs) That would be a nope. Sorry, Nessa. (laughs) Look, you answered your own question. You've got a short-term time horizon. You have a specific use for this money. It is for your down payment. And you've got a goal. You've got you want to get to $30,000 and then you can pull the trigger. If you put it into stocks, for example, and your $10,000 very quickly becomes $8,000, which could happen, then it's going to take you longer. And I don't think that's what either of you want. Now, you said you have it 
in a place where it's earning more. You've got it at a high interest rate. I'd look at high interest rate checking accounts in addition to high interest rate savings accounts. You may find that you can get 4 or 5% on your money by doing it that way. But stocks, absolutely not. Hmm. Okay, good luck, Nessa. Now one from Sarah. I'm interested in lowering my credit card bill, balances around 12000 by getting a better interest rate. I was originally thinking to transfer it to a 0% APR card for 15 to 18 months, but A, is that the ideal long-term solution? And B, how do I find and select a credit card to transfer my credit to to lock in the best rate? I started at bankrate.com. I'm sure it also depends on what result they get when they check your credit, so not much guarantee in the interest rate from there, correct? My intention is to pay the card down and completely off, right? But it's also good to earn credit, so while I'm at it, I should select a card that also provides cashback options, right? Right. Right. A lot of questions in that one question. Yeah. A balance transfer is the right way to go. You're not going to find a longer teaser rate right now than 15 to 18 months, at least not that I've seen lately. It's fine to find a card that will also give you some rewards. They are out there. Discover has cards like that. City has cards like that that will give you the teaser rate and also allow you to earn rewards. But I think there is a little bit of confusing apples and oranges here, and that is that you transfer the balance onto that card. You want to pay it down. You don't have to spend on this card in order to keep up your credit. My guess is you have other cards or you can spend a little bit but pay off that amount each month. What I don't want to see is this urge to earn rewards, which never equal the amount of interest rate that you're paying. I don't want to see the urge to earn rewards get in the way of the primary goal here, which is paying off that card and then paying off the card every single month forever. Yes. I've had to tell a couple girlfriends who love the points, yep. go for the points, but I also know that they love to spend. The so. points are not worth it. You know, if, yep. you, if you added up how much you're spending just to get those points, yeah. you could go out and buy whatever it was right. 10 times over. Okay. And we'll do one more from Dan. I have $1,000 extra to invest. Where should I put it? I'm 57 and work every day in construction. Oh, nice question from mm-hmm. Dan. I would put the money into a very broad target date fund. I mean, at 57 years old, it really depends what this money is for. It's for your long-term future. If you've got 10 years, 15 years, you could put it all in an S&P 500 fund or a total stock market index fund. But if this is the start of a portfolio that you're building for the long term, for retirement, you're going to want to balance it out. And I would put that money into a target date fund with a date in the title that looks like about when you think you'll retire. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. And now for our weekly Thrive segment, it is almost tax time. And if you're like me, you've got a growing pile of papers on your desk just waiting to be filed. The good news is that hanging on to every single one of those documents, even most of those documents, is not necessary. So here are a few guidelines for what you need to keep, to toss, and to shred. Tax documents. The IRS suggests keeping those documents that are related to your taxes for a minimum of three years. After that, you can shred them. Receipts and credit card statements, 
scan them if you can, or save your end of the year statements and then shred everything else. You should know digital copies are acceptable to the IRS, as are those credit card statements. Paper records of investments, those are safe to toss because you can usually count on your brokerage firm to be your record keeper. Before you toss them or shred them, ask to see how far back they keep records on them. Then there are some things that you should keep for as long as you own the asset. So insurance policies need to be kept for as long as you have those underlying policies. Same goes for deeds, for homes and cars. And finally, if you or your aging parent is eligible for Medicaid, you'll probably want to keep at least five years of bank statements. And there are some documents that you're going to want to keep forever, preferably in a fireproof safe. Those include wills, trusts, certificates, birth, marriage, divorce certificates, and child support, alimony, payment records, and military records. Happy filing and happy shredding. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Kate Flanders for the terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We'd like to hear what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with Sheila Nevins. She is the longtime president of HBO Documentaries and author of the book, You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. We'll talk soon.